Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Kevin McGough, author of the book, Finding Your Landing Zone, Life Beyond the Bar. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, Kevin, one of the reasons I thought that this was so appropriate is this episode's going to be airing at the end of 2023, beginning of 2024. The new year comes around and people start looking around at their life and thinking, am I on the right path? Should I be doing something different? And you went through this process and the book is one of those results. Could you talk a little bit about what Finding Your Landing Zone, Life Beyond the Bar is about and how you came to write it? One thing I discovered is that time is not an abundant commodity. So there, I felt an urgency, but that urgency didn't hit me until I was mid-career to decide what my future looked like. I have great respect for my brothers and sisters at the bar that really don't want to ever leave, that this is their life, this is who they are. I've got one great friend who said, McGough, I don't want your book. I'm not interested in what you're trying to sell here. But, but for me, I decided that I really felt like there were other things in my life that I wanted to see and do. And so I had a career coach, which I'd like to talk about. Yeah, could you actually, you had a great passage in your book where you uh, talk about how your career coach sort of launched you into this, this thinking. Would you mind reading that passage? No, no, I'd be happy to. I discovered that much of what I learned from working with Mark had always been right in front of me. I had not taken the time to organize a strategy using advice and information that was at my fingertips. I was too busy. The ubiquitous justification for inaction that is easy to use. I employed this excuse masterfully. But in fact, I chose to be too busy. My intention in these pages is to tell you what I believe worked to get me moving and to encourage you to think about yourself for a few minutes. This book is not about making money or managing the funds you have in the bank, although I'll touch on the topic of finances. There are plenty of resources out there written by experts in the field of personal finance, career change, and retirement planning for you to consult if you wish. I'm not suggesting that you must drop everything and hire a career coach. Not everyone needs the same kick in the rear to advance them towards their goals. I wish to inspire you to stop, look, and listen. Stop and make time to ask yourself, where am I headed? Look at where you have been. Take clues from your past. They will help unlock ideas for you to put into play as you develop a plan for achieving your goals. Listen to those who have been down this same path and your advisors. By listening, you may hear a voice that beckons you to a change. While you listen, hear the advice from friends and family. They want you to be successful and satisfied in your life. Thank you so much for reading that. And one thing I appreciated about the book was you do ground us in what your life was like before you came to this realization that you needed to change. And you don't describe yourself as retired you say you're no longer a working lawyer. But when you were a working lawyer, some of the things that you describe just as the daughter of two attorneys really rang true to me. Uh, like the, the thing that struck me at the beginning was you talk about how 
Before every family vacation, there would come a time when you're like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to leave, guys. Guys, I may not be able to go on the vacation. You may have to go on without me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, every family vacation was like this. So talk a little bit about what what your working life, what your family life was like before you decided you needed a change. It's really funny that you bring that up because it, our children, Patty and I have three children there, and one's a lawyer. But when they were growing up, that phrase, oh, I just don't know how I'm ever going to make it, came up every vacation. And I didn't realize I was saying it until one year, one of our daughters said, hey, mom, has he said it yet? And <laughs> then I caught myself and realized that I'd let law take over my life. And I, and I enjoyed it. it. It's not that I missed things around the house. I coached track at the grade school that our kids went to. I went over, I developed this little French program for fourth graders. And I went over, I'd take some brie cheese and grape juice and talk about French culture. So I I, I did have this time. I, I wouldn't want to give the impression that I walked away from things. But that meant on Saturday and Sunday, if there are no games, I was back in the office. And so I I, do, I tell the story about one vacation where two vacations, actually, that I'm most embarrassed to say. I worked myself crazy to get ready to go. We went to Colorado skiing, and I was so exhausted when I got there from all the work that I'd done to prepare for my absence from the office that I crashed in the car and slept in the parking garage at Vail and at Winter Park. I recommend the one at Vail. It was a little bit nicer, but it certainly was no way to start a ski trip. And that vacation and, and many others, I came back to the office with piles of work and the comment to my colleagues, I wonder why I ever went on this vacation. When I share that story with other lawyers, I get almost universally a head nod. So I knew I was on to something when that experience that, as I said, is not particularly personally flattering, but but it was universal. And I thought that those sort of things helped me decide I, I need to think about what else I might want to do. And what, what happened was, if you fast forward, the career coach, Mark, was in 2007, that about five or six years after that, I started thinking about an exit plan and I had the good luck to be with a progressive thinking law firm. And the, I was on the management committee at one point. And, but the lawyers there in management were interested in finding a way for more experienced lawyers to exit gracefully, to not abandon their book of business, but to pass it down and continue to train. And so the managing partner and the others in command were receptive to me saying, look, I'd like a reduction in my compensation, which is unheard of for a partner law firm to promote. In exchange for which, I'd like to reduce my hours systematically over the next three years. And, and so from 2002 to 2018, I worked at a pretty good lick as the general counsel for a law firm and a litigator, but slowly was passing clients off to the younger partners who were doing great work and I could trust them to take over. And then the last three years, 2015 to 2018, I really cut back dramatically so that by the end, I was in a position to say, this is 
it's time for me to go from the daily day grind of, of being a lawyer to being a mentor. And the phone didn't stop ringing. I'd been a lawyer for 40 years and I spoke and frequently on the topic of legal ethics. And so I had a lot of lawyer and judge clients and law firm clients that wanted ethics advice that continued to call. So for the next several years, I maintained a relationship with the law firm and helped others and discovered that after a period of time, you're not around at bar functions, that you're off traveling, that your name falls off. But when my last paycheck for my share of the what I was bringing in was $44, which <laughs> Patty, if she was here, would be quick to jump in. What he's not telling you is that 40 of it was a cell phone reimbursement. It was less than I made on my paper route when I was 10 <laughs> years old. And, and that... I talk a lot about cues in my book, and that was a cue for me to call the managing partner and have lunch and tell him it was probably time for me to to be a fully retired from the bar lawyer, although I still have my license as I speak with the ABA and, and certainly at other venues on the topic of my book and changing gears or retiring. So what got me to write the book was that I was having dinner with Scott King, who's the head of our the Indiana Continuing Legal Education Forum, but he asked me to maybe sketch out what a program would look like to talk to lawyers about if they want to change gears, change gears, reduce their time, or perhaps retire. And, and it ended up morphing into find your landing zone with the desire to convey to lawyers that my opinion is that we lawyers have all this pent-up talent, and, and not strictly lawyers, but I think professional people or just curious people have talents that, that nest, but the notion that we're too busy to get to them is what I, that's a notion that I like to dispel by the book, that by telling not only my story, but stories of other lawyers and non-lawyers who, in my opinion, are Ordinary people, but have done extraordinary things. Well, let's get into it. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our advertisers. But when we get back, I'm going to ask Kevin to give some nitty gritty advice to those of you who are looking for your own landing zone. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, here with Kevin McGough, author of Finding Your Landing Zone, Life Beyond the Bar. And Kevin, we heard a lot about your uh, intentions, your path, and I thought it was pretty profound. You said, you know, sure, looking back, an outside person may think that this was a strategic plan, but really, in living my life, this just happened. In the book, you're trying to help people <laughs> actually plan this off-ramp. And one of the ways that you do this, in addition to telling the stories of other people and also yourself, you're prompting people to tell their own story to themselves. Often we don't step back and look at what story am I telling with my life? And one of the exercises you encourage people to do is to, you know, write your own epitaph. But when you were sitting down to, to think about what would help people decide how they wanted the next chapter of their life to be post working as a lawyer, what were you thinking of? What were you hoping readers would start to think of when it came to prompting them to develop what they wanted their plan to be? What I found 
from the research I did and the people that I spoke with. And, and when I sat down to write this, what I experienced is it was probably nothing new in what I've written. But what I found is that over the years, I read tons of books about self-help, about retirement, about changing gears, the four-hour work week. I mean, you name it. I was in the self-help aisle, hiding away, looking at these books, always with a Hemingway or a travel book sitting next to me, should any of my colleagues come along. I thought that was so funny. You were like, listen, yes, I've written a self-help book. But for years, I hid my interest in self-help, and I was so embarrassed with the thought that a colleague may see me looking looking at a self-help book, and it really ties itself up in my mind with the difficulty many lawyers have expressing that they need help or feel like they could be doing better. Uh, you have to have this outer shell that says everything's fine. Please ask no further questions. That's right. Uh, We're masters of the universe, right? Yeah, exactly. And I love that you got beyond that to the extent that you wrote your own self-help book. But I also think with that attitude, especially the openness you had with your colleagues at your firm to say, listen, the life I'm currently leading, I I appreciate everything that I've done up to this point, but I, I want and need a change. That's a vulnerability. I'm sure you must have been very... Nervous and hesitant, even if you have, you know, known and respected and and even loved these these people that you have worked with for so long, saying, I need a change, I need less hours, I need to change my life, must have been so hard. Could you give anyone who is fearful about making the same revelation to their coworkers or, you know, firm partners, what message would you want to give them about having that conversation? First of all, I would recommend trying it out on a loved one to see how it sounds. I I have a great story of one of my former partners who had it all hashed out on his back 40 with his wife over a glass of wine. Tomorrow's the big day. I'm going to go talk to the man and tell him that I need to cut down. And then as he's walking to the office to talk to the senior partner who and his great friend and for all these years, he starts having second thoughts and what the notion of having to go home and say I didn't have the conversation provoked him to get in there and have it. Talking it over with a loved one, somebody you trust is important. Talking it over with others is important. A point that I make in the book is to be alert to the fact that if you're going to talk to your current law partners about having making another decision, that you appreciate the fact that uh, your, your game plan should be an honest and upfront one and not anything nefarious, because if you're going to talk to a partner, they have some obligations to a law firm that may compromise a friendship. And so gathering information, talking to someone else, and having a plan for what you want to do is really important. You have a whole chapter, Selling Your Talents to the Firm, which which I thought was a great one. Yeah, you have the ability to, you know, not spin, but to present a compelling case and do that on your behalf. And it's, what I found was that sometimes when you tell your, or you make your request to the management or whoever you need to make it to, a lot of times the rejection of that initially is you caught them by surprise, weren't prepared properly. But, but also the fact that when you say, I'd like to 
step back and not work 80 hours a week. I want to go to 40 and then I want to go to 30 and then I want to go to 20. That the person that you're talking to is internalizing your thoughts and saying, man, I'd like to do that too. But Nancy's in college. I just bought a new house. I, I, I can't personally do it. And so the no answer to the Kevins of the world that are saying, I'd really like to change gears is less about the crest that I make. It's more about the fact that the person that's listening that's got some command over the situation can't do it themselves, but they sure would like to. And, and I found that to be a really interesting dynamic that I would I'd never have occurred to me. But another tip I would say is if you have a committee of people that make decisions about compensation and hours, commitments, and those sort of things, that to have some idea what the vote's going to be like before you make your pitch, just if there's five people on the management committee, talk to at least four of them before, test the waters, I guess, and not just pop in one day, the day before a management meeting, say, hey, uh, starting in three weeks, what I'd like to do is cut my hours in half. On the personal side, there will be days when I say to my myself and to my colleagues, you know what, guys, I'm going to try and take a half day today. You know, it's It's been really swamped and it's going to be picking up as the issue gets closer to print. So I'm going to take a half day today. And I mean to take a half day. I mean to cut my hours. But there's always one more thing. There's always, oh, but I could just do this. Oh, but, you know, it's, oh, I could take care of this before I leave. And then even under the best of circumstances, my half day turns into a three-quarter day. I know that lawyers bill their time. And so maybe it's a little bit different for you. But when you got your approval to, okay, I'm not going to be billing as much, how did you keep yourself to that number where you're like, no, I said I was going to bill 40 hours and I'm going to bill 40 hours and I'm not going to get pulled in to doing more. I'm really going to stick to actually reducing my hours. Was that a struggle or did you find that more simple? No, it, it was a struggle. The uh, mission creep is a phenomenon that I never figured out how to master. And so I was general counsel to a law firm that had about 200 lawyers. And it was the, the best law gig I ever had. I really enjoyed it. The partners and the other lawyers and the staff that I served were just great. And, and But in that role, you never know what's next. And so at the end of the year, it would always be, I found, where I'd be more than that I bargained for. But I liked what I was doing, and I felt, too, that I was good at it, and, and they liked my work and asked me to come back the next year. And so I, I didn't mind until the very last year when I decided that I was at a point where I really needed to move along. And so when I hit my what I bargained for, I, I, I had a meeting with the powers that be and said, look, I, it's, I think it's time for me to step back and help transition this, this role to another. And, and that's what happened and it, and it worked out fine. But there's a, if somebody has a remedy for mission creep, I, it'd be interesting to hear it because it's a, <laughs> that's a book in itself. It's a tough one. <laughs> but what you did just bring up is an important part of the book and an important part of something that I hope all lawyers think about, which is a succession plan. Even if you are one of the attorneys, and we, you know, we write stories about these these folks where you know it's a hundred year old lawyer who is is still practicing. He still finds uh, a great deal of enjoyment. But you need to have a succession plan, even if you do plan to only exit your office 
feet first in a casket. Uh, <laughs> for your client's sake, you need to have this sort of backup. You're encouraging people to think about that succession plan as a period of mentoring young lawyers. And I loved that. Or, you know, lawyers earlier in their career. Could you talk a little bit about that part of your experience of the book and why you think it is an important thing for lawyers who are on their way out to consider? Yes, as a litigator, there's great satisfaction when when the words not guilty ring out or the judgments in your favor or and you get a great result in your negotiations. But there's also a satisfaction of a contribution to the law firm where you had a hand and somebody who gave them one of their early witnesses to go cross-examine or help me put this case together and ultimately sit kind of second chair and see this development is very satisfying. And I think that's another point that I would make to lawyers that it's overlooked because, again, we're too busy. It's it's more about us and I need to win this case and I need to take all the tough witnesses and I'm not ever leaving this gig. But the fact is that everybody's going to leave the gig. It just depends on how. So to have somebody take over that you not only trust, but you really, you like their skills and their outlook on things. And I think that's satisfying. Another satisfying part of a career that you don't think about when you're a third-year associate. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers. And when we return, I'm going to be asking Kevin a very important question, which is, why France? Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, here speaking with Kevin McGough, author of the book, Finding Your Landing Zone. And Kevin, we have not really discussed much the goals that you had that made you decide, you know what, my time as a working lawyer is over. I have other things I want to accomplish. You have a whole chapter in your book called Why France, you ask. One of the reasons I want to talk to you about it is not only are you a good storyteller and, and you know, it's, it's very colorful, but I think that it shows that you have identified something in your life that many attorneys who ask themselves, what's the next chapter, haven't necessarily landed on, and they need to land on their own version of France, the, the thing that makes it worth it to, to leave, that, that provides fulfillment. So let's talk about it. You mentioned already that you have helped teach French to young children and, and fostering love of the French language. Let's talk about what role France plays in your life and the life of you and your wife. I was in the Army. I joined the Army in 1971 so that I could pay for college. And the only people I ever knew who went to Europe were men who were in World War II. Nobody in our neighborhood traveled like that. We went from Indianapolis to Cleveland every summer for one week. That was our vacation. So I, so I ended up in Germany. I lucky and ended up in Vietnam, and I ended up in Germany, and I traveled some. And liked it a lot. And at that time, Patty, my then future wife, was she was still in high school. I was 18 years old, a couple years older than her, and we were riding back and forth. And we decided that when I finished my time in service, I could stay in Europe. She'd just about, she'd be graduated from high school. She could come over. We'd have this great tour, and I could fly back on the military's dime. Well, try selling that on two Catholic households in the 1970s. It fell pretty flat with my dad, with her dad. And so we postponed that, and then we got married the next year. 
and saved up for three years so that we could go to France. And it'll be 50 years that we've been married here in about a month. So we started every summer, if we almost every summer that we were married, we'd go for a week or two weeks or 10 days, what we could afford. And we found that we liked the lifestyle. And we'd both taken French in high school and college. So we had a basic knowledge of French. We didn't speak the language. We could conjugate verbs and maybe read a part of a newspaper. So we started taking classes with tutors, and that was an on and off thing for many, many years. But ultimately, we started staying in France longer and decided that we really one day would like to live there. And I, I had an opportunity when I was looking for a job in 1980 to have an internship there, and it I was accepted, but then I was accepted to a law firm in a county seat town not far from Indianapolis, and I took that job. And my boss, who I said, yeah, so I'm going to take Greenfield, Indiana over Paris, France. And he said, absolutely. He said, that's what you need to do. France will always be there. And he was right. It, it was a really good decision. Ultimately, we could stay longer. And as I wound down my law career, we stumbled into an opportunity to buy this small apartment. And some folks there, Harry and Judy, were kind enough to share the economics of how you could have an apartment, rent it out, and it would pay for itself. And so that's what we did. And we're in this little town. It's called ile sur la sorgue It's near Avignon in uh, Provence. And we started staying there longer during COVID. We stayed there for nine months. Now we spend about half the year there and have a very different life than suburban Marion County, Indiana. We live in a small town. We walk everywhere. There's three boulangers and two butchers within five minutes of us. And so just a very different life with a lot of different friends from all over the world that we engage with on a daily basis. I, I tell people that in France, we live outside the front door. We're here. We live in the backyard you don't walk out the front door in, in our little town without running to somebody that wants to chat or invite you for coffee and a glass of wine or come over for dinner. And it's just been a very interesting life. And it's one of those things that along the way, you, know, you just never know what's going to happen. There's an author, Matt Haig, who wrote a book called The Midnight Library. And he, he talks about how we have many lives and we make different choices that if you do one thing different, you have a totally different life story. And I write about this in the book about how I was on the management committee and I lost my position, but that opened my calendar up to the opportunity to be in France at a time of year we hadn't been and we stumbled into this apartment. Had I not lost that election, that never would have happened. All these little things that, that happen to you along the way that end up in, in a good way. If one of our listeners is like, you know what, I do have my own France. This is the thing that I have like gone and circled back to again and again in my life. And I know that I don't want to live the rest of my life without experiencing this thing. But, you know, even if I have this talk about reducing my hours, how would I even make that happen financially? And uh, one of the things, you know, you, as you say, that there are books that get into the absolute nitty gritty about finances, but what is some of the advice that you wanted to share and do share in um, a couple of the chapters of Finding Your Landing Zone when it comes to thinking about the finances? Because that feels so daunting 
to so many attorneys. They'd love to, you know, just concentrate on the law. They don't want to think about the money. What what are some of the tips that you have for putting yourself in a financial position where you can make some of these things happen and, and find your own France? I actually had help writing that chapter from some good financial planners, including a man that's been helping us for some years, that if you personalize it to your spending patterns and to your wishes, then you may find that you can slow down faster than you think uh, and retire faster than you think, as opposed to looking at, if you get on a financial calculator and just plug the numbers in, it'll have this steady line going straight up saying that if you're if you're living on $10,000 a month right now and you want to keep doing that, that by the time you're 80, you just do the math at 5% or 2% and you'll come up with a staggering number. But if you say, I'm probably going to hang it up at 60 or 65 and I know that those are the, what our planner says, those are the go-go years, right? You're healthy, you're, you're young and able to do things and you're going to do stuff. And I've seen this in friends, family, and our financial planners talk to us about, you, you, you get this something he calls the go slow years where you've taken the cruises, you've played plenty of golf, you've sharpened your pinochle skills, you've gone out to dinner three nights a week and you sort of slow down a little bit. When you do slow down, then your expenses slow down. And there is a point, you know, I hope I'm bungee jumping when I'm 80, but maybe I won't be. And maybe you want to stay closer to home, which he refers to as the no-go years, when you need less resources economically. And so if you envision the stair-step spending where you spend more the first day of retirement than you do in your seventh year of retirement, than you do in your 14th year of retirement and construct a plan that envisions inflation, obviously, but also a reduction in expenses because of lifestyle, the number that you need to hang it up becomes a lot smaller. We, we've been open with our kids and it, it's a running joke that we're spending their inheritance, right? Everybody's educated, got a good job, they're off the payroll, they're doing great. Everybody's not like that. I, we have friends that part of what they're ideas that they want to create a legacy for children, grandchildren, or maybe a church or the bar association or an institution. And that's, you plug those numbers in and there's a way to personalize the retirement. And I am a firm believer, particularly as a lawyer who represented lawyers, often I found that had the lawyer not thought that he or she could do everything, they wouldn't have been in trouble with the ethics folks and needed to hire me. And, and that applies to the personal life also. I mean, I'm not, I was a history major and I wasn't an accounting major. I tried accounting, but I couldn't get the balance sheet to operate without a plug number. So <laughs> that career was short-lived and I, I tried to follow my own advice and get with a, an accountant, with a financial advisor and, and who would willing to work because I think I never thought of myself as a difficult client, but I it was often I'd go meet with Michael, our financial man, and call him up on the way home and say, hey, Michael, I just thought about this. Can you tweak the spreadsheet a little bit? But if you find the right person that works with you and you spend some time, one of the things that we wiped out the word budget in the household, it's called spending pattern. Because when you say budget, it my wife is like, oh, do we really have to talk about this? But Well, and it makes people think of scarcity. You know, budget is a word that provides a lot, a lot of like stress. 
It does. It really took three years for us to figure out what our spending pattern was because you have three kids, somebody wants to go to CYO camp or they want to go to the volleyball camp or gymnastics. It, 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 you end up at the end of the year having what our daughter-in-law, Nicole, who's a financial planner, that she calls it the annual state of the union where she and our son go to maybe have a nice meal or take a weekend trip. But part of the agenda is let's talk about where we were this year, where do we end up and what are our plans for next year professionally and economically? And I think as you get to a point, well, this worked for us as we got to a point where we said, okay, let's figure out what the end date is because we want to do some traveling and, and other things. And how do we get there? Well, first step is to figure out what you spend. And, and again, I think it took about three years for us to we put the spreadsheet together, which I, I have a link in the book to what we used, we personalized it. But once that was figured out, then we could go to the financial guy and say, okay, this is what we're spending now. Yeah, okay, the dry cleaning bill is gonna fall off and I don't have to take my suits and shirts in anymore, but that's not <laughs> gonna make a big dent in things. Uh, and as he pointed out, yeah, and you're going out to dinner bill will increase because you're not getting ready for a trial. And five nights a week, you're gonna wanna go to your favorite Italian restaurant. But having a trusted, advisor is really important. And I think it's also important, and I have put this in the book, that to go to that person with your ideas and not make it a two-way street. And it's like anything else, the more you put into it, the more you'll get out of it. But as opposed to letting somebody else put your plan together, put your own plan together, but have an expert there to say, Kevin, this is unattainable, right? There's You cannot take the $54,000 Viking cruise around the world. It's not your budget. <laughs> Very rude. Very rude of financial advisor to yes. say no yeah, to that. Reality <laughs> checks are always difficult. Just to switch tax a little bit, I know that when my parents, who, as I mentioned, are both attorneys, look back at the legal profession, there have been a lot of changes that they lived through and saw within the profession. You're a former president of the Indianapolis Bar Association. You, you know, wrote this and published it with the senior law division within the ABA. So you come into contact with a lot of lawyers, not just through your practice, but also your bar association activities. Do you have advice for very young lawyers who are far off from this feeling like a reality for them based on what you've seen happening with the legal profession? First of all, I would highly recommend getting involved. The friendships that I developed and my wife developed through bar association activity with the Indianapolis Bar, with the Indiana Bar, with the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers are people that we, even though we're not here for half the year, we communicate with all the time and we're going to dinner with when we come home. But those those relationships are really special beyond the obvious networking opportunities of, but I do think that what I'm observing and, and when I talk to my former colleagues, how people work nowadays and not just in the legal profession, but where there's a work from home and maybe not go into the office, you know, every day of the week, like in the old days. And I think that's a challenge that, that there's a lot of good information that is discussed in over a quick lunch, maybe sitting at your desk and, and 
to me, in part, that's something of a missed opportunity that I don't really have a good answer for to how you engage and 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 mentor and come up as a young lawyer through a Zoom call, right? I'd encourage people to get involved and get involved means going to the bar association office and and hanging out there, go to the fundraiser. We have a great fundraising event every year at the Indianapolis Bar Association. But those personal relationships, that was a message I, I was given when I was, my first year of law school, I, I got a D in contracts and I was so upset my first semester. I thought, why did I work so hard? I could have stayed at candy company delivering candy machines and been a supervisor <laughs> and had a pickup truck to use on the weekends. And I go to law school and get a D and and the dean of law school said, well, here's my recommended solution, Kevin. He said, stop working on the school paper. I don't think you need to be involved in school politics and, and quit. I was refereeing high school football games to make some money. And, you know, I wanted to do the two things and I needed to do the refereeing to make some cash. So I didn't follow his advice, but two of my buddies said, Mac, let's just face it. You've forfeited your opportunity as, at a, for have a jo- having a job at a big law firm. With What you ought to do is get better grades, but also you should meet as many people as you can over the next two and a half years while you're in law school. That's where you'll find your success. And the dean who's became a great friend and sadly has passed away, I my buddies were right. And I didn't follow the dean's advice and he never held that against me, but... The more people that you know and the bigger horizon that you've got, the opportunities for success expand with that. Well, and one of the things that I, you know, you include many stories in here, little anecdotes about your life. And one of the more charming ones to me, it's clear that little Kevin was never afraid to make a big swing to meet a person you're interested in meeting. And the story that I'm thinking about is when through working your paper route, you earned a trip to D.C. And you're like, well, I'm going to be in D.C. So you ran off a letter to President John F. Kennedy's social secretary. And he said, I will be in town on the state and would love to come, you know, meet the president. And unfortunately, that didn't happen. But I I do love that attitude that little Kevin was like, well, yeah, I'm going to be in town. We might as well try and have a sit down. If you think about that, I was, I, was, I was 10 years old. It was the spring of 63. And so I'm the oldest of, ultimately the oldest of six kids. And I win this paper route trip and my parents were, they were, that was great. They took me down to the bus station and I got on a bus. There were three trailways buses that went from Indianapolis to D.C., an overnight trip. I, I ended up in the room with two eighth graders. I'm a fifth grader. And they're, uh, they're smoking cigarettes was their violating of the rules plan. And, and what I was doing was jumping on the bed trying to touch the <laughs> ceiling. So imagine ah, a Can parent. you imagine now it's a 10-year-old going? Oh, I don't think. Yeah. No <laughs> I have chance. a 10-year-old grandson. I can't see <laughs> the parents. Oh, yeah, Colin, go off to D.C. for a couple of days. Well, Kevin, as we are um, wrapping up our interview, I just wanted to check in with you and see what you think is next for you. You know, you've written the book, Finding Your Landing Zone, Life Beyond the Bar, that has some lawyer-specific information. But as I was reading it, I thought, you know, a lot of these questions you're asking your 
readers to ask themselves, a lot of the more worksheet elements could be more broadly applied. Do you have any plans to do more in this area, but for a broader audience? I've thought about that, Lee. I have actually an outline on my directory for book two. What I would like to find a broader audience for this, that the title, I think, because I know lawyers, having been one, still am one. And so that's was the easiest for me to write to because of the experiences I had over the years. But but I have had some of my beta readers were not lawyers. I had a doctor, an accountant, other business people that looked at this. And uh, one of my army buddies was a glass blower and his wife, who's an English teacher, who's also a writer. And I, and I had the same observations you've just made that why don't you retool this, which is a project that, that I would like to do because I, I would like to share what I can I, with others. And I, I really like when I get a call or an email saying, you know what, You've, there was something in there that hit me that inspired me. And my hope is that I can uh, provide a snippet to other people that they would uh, gain traction from and, and start a new life if that's what they want to do. And if people who read the book or listen to this interview are interested in reaching out to you, um, having a discussion, learning more, obviously you can pick up the book, Finding Your Landing Zone, but is there a way that readers and listeners could contact you? Sure. I, I enjoy hearing from people about their unique paths in life. And so you can uh, DM me or or email me that, I, that I'm available. I have a website, Sur La Route. S-U-R-L-A-R-O-U-T-E-K-M.com. And that will lead you to travel articles I've written, uh, other podcasts I've done, and also uh, a link to purchase the book from either the American Bar Association or Amazon or uh, Barnes & Noble. Well, thank you to Kevin for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. And thank you to you, my listener, for spending this time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. And if you have questions, comments, or a book you think I should read, you can always reach us at books at abajournal.com.